Come June, the north woods of Michigan fill with summer people. Families from downstate who escape the heat and bustle of the cities and head to their lakeside cottages. Many families form some of their greatest memories up north during the summertime. Not the Robisons. Fifty years ago this month, the family of five was slaughtered in their cabin near the town of Goodhart, a small outpost along the northern coast of Lake Michigan. The probable motive? Good old-fashioned greed, though no one will ever know the truth. The case remains open, unsolved, and will likely stay that way forever. Stick around and find out why. Welcome to Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Darcy Moran. And this is John Counts. We're reporters for MLive.com and your hosts for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is titled, Good Heart. Head north from Petoskey, around Little Traverse Bay, and follow the beautiful Lake Michigan coastline, and soon enough you'll end up in the remote village of Good Heart. Desolate and beautiful, there isn't much in the area except vacation homes. One hot July day in 1968, some ladies playing bridge outside in the cottage community of Blisswood were offended by a foul smell coming from one of the cabins. They called on a local caretaker to investigate. Assuming it was a dead animal, the man brought a shovel. What he found has haunted Goodhart ever since. Six dead bodies were scattered throughout the vacation home, the entire Robison family. Dick, Shirley, and their four children, Richie, 19, Gary, 17, Randy, 12, and little Susie, just 8 years old. Their corpses had been rotting in the hot cabin for a month, the furnace on full blast. Thousands of flies buzzed inside. Arriving police officers needed to wear gas masks. The Robisons were an attractive, wealthy family from the Detroit suburb of Lathrop Village near Southfield. Dick was in advertising and marketing, but he also ran an arts magazine called Impresario with an office in Birmingham. His wife was a homemaker known for her hosting abilities. Their children were smart and well-behaved, the oldest in college. They'd bought their vacation home in Goodhart just three years earlier. As civil unrest enveloped Detroit, the family was looking forward to spending the whole summer up north, away from the riots and racial strife in the city. By all accounts, business was good for Dick. He was even planning on a trip to buy more property in Kentucky and Florida that summer. So who would want to kill this handsome, successful family? To find out more about the case, I talked to Marty Link, author of the 2008 book When Evil Came to Goodheart. Link said there was something more sinister lurking beneath the all-American gloss of the Robison family, however. Yeah, from the outside, Richard and Shirley just seemed like uh, the all-American family. You know, they were attractive, and they had these four intelligent, healthy, and extremely well-behaved children. And on the inside, things were a little stranger. Um, Richard had gone through 10 secretaries in 10 years, 
and some of those secretaries would talk about his strange behavior that he would call them into his office and they they he would ask them to hike up their skirts so that he could rub their legs but it never went any further than that some of the secretaries tolerated that and would stay around for a few months some of them that happened one time and they would immediately quit without even say giving a notice or saying you know they just wouldn't show up to work the next day and it, you know along with that richard had all of these grandiose dreams for what his business could turn into. He thought that he was going to buy the New Hudson Airport and turn it into some kind of a cultural center. So he his his mind was wild with ideas. And some of them were probably doable and some of them were just complete pie in the sky, but none of them really ever came to fruition. It turned out business was not all fine and dandy for Dick. Even as he entertained grandiose ideas, he was encountering financial difficulties. Bills weren't being paid. His bank accounts showed erratic activity. Suspicion immediately turned to Dick's business associate, Joe Scalaro, a 30-year-old former military intelligence officer Dick had hired as an ad salesman. Scalaro quickly became Dick's right-hand man. As Dick spent more time working on his loftier ideas, he ceded the day-to-day operations over to Scalaro. Detectives investigating the case had a keen eye on Scalaro from day one. It was very soon after the murder was discovered that some of Joe's behavior um, caused suspicion amongst the police. He was one of the first people to come up to, um, to Goodhart and meet with the sheriff and the prosecutor, and almost immediately they just found his behavior kind of hanky. You know, he talked very fast. He told them untruths or half-truths. He didn't have an answer when they asked him where he had been the day that the Robisons were killed. And then quite soon after that, the Michigan State Police learned that Joe Scalero was um, an excellent marksman and that he competed in trap shooting events. So almost immediately they started thinking, not only is he giving us answers that he can't verify, um, he doesn't really have an alibi for the day of the crimes, and he certainly had the capability to carry them out. As they looked deeper into the financial books, they found that Sclaro was stealing money from Dick's business. It gave police a motive, and a theory. Dick finds out Scalaro is embezzling from him, confronts him over the phone from Goodhart. Scalaro drives up to the cabin and kills Dick and the rest of the family who just happened to be in the way. Police had a difficult time proving this theory, however. At first there was no physical evidence, but soon a few breakthroughs would change that, a bloody footprint and some bullets. First, the footprint. Detectives lifted the print of a boot in the blood-drenched cabin. The print exactly matched a pair owned by Sclaro, but when experts examined the boots, they determined they'd never been worn. It was only later that detectives learned that it was a personal quirk of Scalaro to always buy two of everything, including guns. Scalaro was an avid gun collector and shooter of weapons. He just so happened to have the same rare type of AR-7 rifle that killed the Robisons. But ballistic experts couldn't exactly match any of the bullets found at the crime scene to guns in his possession. But there was a break in the case. I think the big break came in their investigation when they learned from Joe Scalero's father-in-law 
that Joe liked to take target practice on his father-in-law's property. And so the police went there and they took a metal detector and they spent an entire weekend in November looking for shell casings and looking for um, ammunition. And they found a number of, you know, they found a number of things along with shell casings that almost exactly matched the shell casings that they found at the murder scene four and a half hours north. So that was kind of the smoking gun. You know, who else would have been practicing at this family target range and then also would have killed the Robinson family besides Joe Scalero? Did he buy two AR-7s and use one to kill the Robisons, then ditch it? Just like the second pair of boots, police thought that might be the case. Detectives felt they had enough to charge Sclaro. The Emmett County Prosecutor's Office declined to prosecute the case, however. There were no murder weapons and no witnesses who put Sclaro anywhere near Goodhart on the night of the murder. A few years passed. Police kept their eye on Sclaro the entire time. He took over Dick's business, but encountered both financial and legal difficulties. He was writing bad checks all over town. Then in 1973, four years after the murders, the Oakland County Prosecutor's Office reignited the case. While the Robisons were killed in Goodhart up in Emmett County, officials decided they could make the argument that Sclaro hatched the plan in Oakland County. The Prosecutor's Office prepared to charge Sclaro with murder. But worldly legal justice wasn't meant to be. Soon after Sclaro was informed that he was going to be charged with the murder of the Robison family, he sent his mother out on an errand. He locked himself in his bedroom, pulled out a handgun, and shot himself through the temple. So when the police showed up to deliver the warrant, all they found was a dead suspect. In a suicide note, he admits that he's, quote, a liar, cheat, phony, unquote. But in a postscript, he claims that, quote, I had nothing to do with the Robisons. I'm a cheat, but not a murderer, unquote. So we will never conclusively know what exactly happened at the cabin in Goodhart 50 years ago. The case remains open, and over the years, detectives have continued to revisit it. To give you an idea of how hard the police worked to solve it, when I did a FOIA request, the amount of paperwork that I got, you could fit inside the box that a giant, old-fashioned, 1960s Curtis Matthews television would come in. You know, I got this huge, it's a huge file. It continues to be just this massive file. So what's the legacy of this case after 50 years? The legacy for me is that we care about what happens to people. You know, we care about about justice being served, even 50 years later. There's just this thing that's hanging. It's unsatisfying. We want someone in some kind of official capacity to say that Joe Scalero was guilty. And we don't have that. And we might never have that. And that's hard to live with. Link's book, The Most Comprehensive Telling of the Story, was first published in 2008 by the University of Michigan Press. It's being reissued with some new information this year to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the murders. Okay, well, hi, I'm Darcy Moran with Michigan Crime Stories, and I'm sitting here with John Counts, who just uh, told the story here about Goodhart. Um, John, uh, just to start out with some questions for you, um, I'm really interested in uh, the Robison's uh, vacation habits. If you knew if this was uh, a frequent um, event for them to, to go up there every year. 
So as I noted in the story, they had bought that cottage up north about three years before the murders. So Dick Robison had done rather well for himself in life, and he you know, worked real hard on a, a lot of different fronts. And this was going to be the first summer that they would have been away from Detroit like the entire summer, not just like on weekends here or there. So they were, they were pretty excited. They were actually just getting ready also to um, fly from Goodhart down to Kentucky, where he planned on buying his eight-year-old daughter, Susie, a horse farm. And then from there, they were going to fly to Florida to buy uh, like another vacation home, like a condo or something like that. So, and, and this kind of contradicts a lot some of what they found out in his uh, financial portfolio, which was kind of a mess um, due to the the eventual murder su- suspect Joe Sclero's embezzlements, and also just kind of mis- general company mismanagement um, by by Dick Robison. And so were, was this family well-known in Goodhart at the time of their deaths? You know, the vacation community that they lived in, or they had a home in Blisswood, was um, rather, you know, a prominent place in the Goodhart area. And, you know, there a lot of the people in, the, in that community had seen them show up, had helped them. Um, he had hired some, some workers to do some work around the house just a few days before the, the murders took place that they determined later, detectives later determined according to the timeline. See, what's, what's a little tricky here is that the, they were last seen on, in late June, but the bodies weren't found until three and a half weeks later. So you have to remember that this is an, an era before cell phones, before the Internet, um, before even just, just kind of regular um, reliable phones. And a place like Goodhart was so remote, I think you had to just go into town to make a phone call to anybody. So people could fall off the face of the earth for a few weeks, and it was like no big deal. Um, I mean, there were there were people concerned about them, but it wasn't uh, – most people just assumed that they – in the Goodhart area that they had left on their, um, their second leg of their vacation or their trip down to Kentucky and Florida. They didn't know that they were inside the, the cabins, though. Yeah, and I think that's something that particularly struck me in the story was that it took them so long to find the bodies um, and and what the community must have been like for them to kind of have gone uh, unseen there. I think that, you know, secondary vacation trip probably playing a part in that. Um, I do want to ask, though, how did this impact the Goodhart community? Um, And is that something that Link talked about at all? So, I mean, I've, I've heard about this case for a very long time and the people of Goodhart, to my knowledge um do not like to talk about it if you go up there to this day and start asking people about it it is not something that they they care to talk about um in in uh, marty link's book she does go up there and she talks to some of some of the folks about the sort of persisting legacy of this case and you know it's it's something that would never happen that felt like it would never happen in a place like this you know, Lake Michigan is, is right there. This is kind of like the Gold Coast of Michigan vacation up north territory. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's still it's still rather notorious up there. And, uh, you know, obviously one of the most well-known northern Michigan mass murder cases. Okay, well, I think we will end it there. Um, I am Darcy Moran. And this is John Counts. And this is Michigan Crime Stories.
Thanks for listening, and stay tuned to Michigan Crime Stories for more episodes of mystery, murder, and mayhem in the Mitten State.